is there life after death? What happens when someone has a near-death experience? Buckle on up as you are about to hear a point of view from the pioneer and author of the mega best-selling book on life after life. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest is the author of the mega best-selling book, Life After Life, where in 1975, the phrase near-death experience was first used. He is a pioneer in near-death research and has interviewed thousands of people who have had near-death experiences, including the most discussed ones on record. His latest book is God is Bigger Than the Bible. That's one that's you're going to have a hard time putting that one down. He is not only a prolific author, but also a brilliant philosopher, psychologist, and physician. I am proud to call him my friend. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Dr. Raymond Moody. Hi, Eli. It's so good to see you and uh, always good to talk with you and your sweet wife. Well, thank you so much. And your wonderful cousin, Carol. (laughs) You're too sweet. You know, you and I met uh, in 1998 when I flew you from your comfortable home down south up to New York City, the Big Apple, (laughs) to give a presentation on the near-death experience and talk about your book, which was only at that time was already a bestseller. Uh, The attendees, uh, Raymond, at that seminar, I noticed they were riveted to basically every Mm -hmm. word you were saying, looking for Mm -hmm. answers to their very existence. So that leads me into a very controversial question. I'm sorry to start off the show with a little bit of controversy. What what makes you convinced that near-death experiences are real and not as some naysayers would have you believe lacking in scientific proof because you have stated you have no doubt that they get a glimpse of the beyond. Yeah. Well, what I would say, first of all, is that to put this in the terms of science in the year 2021, Eli, is just a mistake. In 2021, the question of life after death is not yet a scientific question. It's still a philosophical or conceptual question. What do we mean by life after death, right? But the reason why I just give up after a certain period of time, I mean, this idea of it being oxygen deprivation to the brain, well, it's very common for people at the bedside who are not themselves ill or injured, who are just there attending the dying person that have these same experiences as the dying person passes away, the bystanders may leave their own bodies and go part way to the light with their dying loved one. And I mean, I just give up. I know so many physicians who've had this experience, whose medical judgment I trust, but it's just, it's a subject judgment. But um, I think it's not oxygen deprivation to the brain. What it is beyond that, I think people have to kind of 
work it out for themselves. Well, we hear so much about this so-called white light. You know, you pass yeah. through this white light and it feels really good. You get to the other side. And many uh, near-death experiencers have actually said that they have a hard time coming back. Tell us about oh, yeah. that. Yeah, this is something I just hear. I remember even back in the late 60s, early 70s, being struck so much by that. I mean, now I'm accustomed to it. But, you know, people just constantly saying, you know, I, I didn't want to come back. They said, well, you know, you got to go back. You have things left to complete. But I didn't want to. Or sometimes people say that they were given a choice. They say I could have, they said I could either stay over there or could go back to the life I'd been leading. So they say that when given the choice, they chose to come back. But it's interesting. I've never heard anybody say that they came back for themselves. What they say is for me, I would rather have stayed, but they say I chose to come back. And the most common reason you can even sort of imagine i think is that they say i had young children left to raise so for me i wanted to stay but i i chose to come back for those kids well those are some pretty good lessons to then learn on the other side that life is Absolutely. not about you know uh, altruism for yourself but for others more importantly and now i want to get back into the white light tell us about the white light that seems to fascinate so many people what is that experience like well, people say that at a certain point in this, first of all, that it's beyond words. They say you're just, you're out of the field where you can make sense with meaningful words that we know. But people say that at a certain point of this, they leave their bodies, they go through a passageway of some sort and come out into an incredibly bright light. They say far brighter than anything we experience in this life is light. But nonetheless, it's not uncomfortable. Matter of fact, it's no hurting of the eyes. It's just you're completely absorbed into this, which they say. I've heard people say, I said, say light. I could also see, say love, light or love. And this light is personalized. People experience this as a being of sheer compassion and sheer love. The first person I ever knew who had this experience, um, he said he called that light Christ. I've heard friends who just say, well, a light or, or people who say God or people who say angels or whatever the designation they put on this light. They say it's a being of complete compassion and love who knows everything about you because people say at this state they are surrounded by a sort of holographic panorama, I guess, of everything they've ever done, which they see everything they've ever done and the bad and the good, right? And yet that this review is undertaken in the presence of this being of complete compassion who loves you anyway. So it's a very, very mind transforming experience that these people have. Now this panoramic review that we have of our own self that's pretty fascinating. And when we have this panoramic review, do we judge ourselves most harshly more than oh, anybody else would? Yeah, very many people say, yeah, they went right into their judgment mode, especially because, and you, you see in this timeless panorama, everything you've ever done, but you also re-witness it, not just through your perceptions, but also through the self or the empathically co-living it with the person with whom you interact 
So if you see yourself doing something mean, then you immediately pick up on the hurt that you delivered to the other person. Well, that will so, make yourself a lot more empathetic, I would suppose, uh, after seeing yes, that through their eyes and in their moccasins. That is so right, Eli. And to me, this is, you were saying, to me, this is really about the most fascinating aspect of these near-death experiences. And for one thing, you know, for a moment, let's leave the issue of afterlife aside. But even if you just don't even think of that, that aspect of it, you can, we can draw a very phenomenal mind-bending conclusion from it, which is obviously, you know, an unexceptional, or which is, think about it this way. In these near-death experiences, people say time stands still. They're surrounded by this panorama. Everything they've ever done, they see from the perspective of the people they've interacted to instantaneously. And so what that means is, for sure, we got for an absolutely true inference, we can say, at least for many of us, life is a two-phase process. Think about it. We live it forward as the actor or protagonist. Then time stands still and we re-witness the same action from the point of view of the other characters involved. Now that is plain fact. And to me, that is astonishing <laughs> that life is, is kind of like these two phases to it from, from many of us at least. Well, I think living life sort of backwards that way where you actually get to experience the harm and the uh disease that you may have caused other people from your actions is fascinating. And certainly many of us should think in those terms <laughs> before it gets too late and before we have all that harm. And then we end up uh, feeling right. sorry about it because it's a little too late. So yeah. there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And all of this, you know, Raymond seems so simple because it says it even in the Bible, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Uh, and yet so many of us sort of miss that. So, you know, one of the fascinating things I'd like to learn is what are some of the common themes that you've encountered in your interviews with these near-death experience survivors? There's a, about 15 or so common elements where if you look at hundreds of accounts, you'll see these, say, 15 or so common elements that crop up again and again, some of them more common than others. And one person may have two or three or four of these or seven or eight or nine or all 15, depending on how close they got to that, like the people with the extremely lengthy cardiac arrest are for my, more likely to tell you this whole full-blown story. But some of the things that we're familiar with, they say that, you know, they hear the doctor say, oh my God, he's dead, or we've lost him, or words to that effect, where, where they say, they say that I've never felt so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead, as a number of people have felt. So then they say you, they leave their physical bodies. They can see the scene of the resuscitation going down below. They can understand what the doctors and nurses are communicating with each other, not in an auditory, but they seem to know their thoughts. They say that they uh, go through this passageway and come out on the other side into this incredibly brilliant, comforting, loving light. And relatives or friends of theirs who have already passed away seem to be there to meet them. And then they undergo this review of their life. How about their pets? 
One, I have heard just a very few cases of this, Eli, and I wonder sometimes whether people withhold that because I, the reason I sort of suspect it is that I've done many grief years, many uh, years I've done grief therapy. And I see this all the time that people don't want to talk about grief, uh, grieving for their pets because they feel like people will think they're weak or complaining to them. It's whatever. So, but I, I have heard very few, but, but it wouldn't be surprised if maybe that's a detail that, uh, people don't share because like I say, I know people are reluctant to share grief about their pets. I think one of the most profound thoughts that every human being has more than once and maybe thousands of times is what exactly happens when a person dies. So many of us live our lives and we say, is that it? Is that all there is? You know, why are we here? Uh, and why is life so short? What's the point of it all? Yeah. What have you garnered in your philosophy on what happens when a person dies? Well, Eli, I have come to what I think about this just by being squeezed to a point, but I don't know what else to say, but that as I gather what this thing we're in that we call life is to use a kind of rough metaphor is kind of a theater, right? And that life is story. You know, what is your life except your story? My idea is that we are God's stories. Eli, you may remember Ellie Wiesel. You're, yes. you're too young. Oh, you do. Holocaust survivor. Yeah. Oh, yes. my God. A wonderful, warm, sweetheart of a scholarly man who wrote a number of books, one Nobel Prize in Literature. You, you know that there's a street in Manhattan uh, named after him. I believe it's 83rd Street uh, oh. in Broadway is named after him, one of the streets. Wow. wow, that's just terrific. And he said, Ellie said, God made man because he loves stories. So Eli, that's exactly what I've come to think. I just think that as bizarre as it seems that what your consciousness is even set up to create a story, right? Whenever anything new happens to you, what your mind does is it weaves it into your life story. And so uh, Aristotle said, you know, a story has a beginning and a middle and an end. That's kind of like life, right? And so I don't have any religious tradition to draw from. The only person in my family who... I don't guess she was religious, but she had at least had some exposure. She was Jewish, so she knew some about the all that stuff. I she Ruth was the only person I knew who knew anything about religion except to make fun of it. <laughs> and I'm sorry though, but it sounds crass, but that's just the way the Waltons were at that time. And so I grew up free of all the whole thing about God and all that. Uh, then I had my own personal experience oh, 10, 20 years ago of just the absolute, the presence of God, it was overwhelming. So where I have come to think is that what this is, is God loves to watch our life stories. I think Ellie Bezos was right on. 
And because, you know, in these life reviews, that's what happens. People say it all slows down and you're in this presence of this being of light. Some say Christ or, you know, angels or God or whatever. But that the point is this all-knowing, all-loving being sort of helps you through this thing. And so obviously then this being has been taking, keeping track of that, right? So yeah, I th it's like God watches our stories. And as psychotic as that may sound, I think it, it has to do with the mystery of the origin of the theater. Some people might say, oh, Raymond Moody in saying this, you're just, it's a logical fallacy. You're taking this one aspect of life, namely the theater, you're projecting it out as the model of the whole. And that is a logical fallacy, one of Aristotle's original list, it would be. But I'm saying it happened the other way around that the reason we have theater is, as I've observed myself in my psychiatry career, it's just a very common thing that reflective old people, when they get in their 60s, 70s, um, begin to say, you know, the, the older I get, the more when I look back on my life, it seems like it's been the, a story or a play or a drama. You just, I mean, I've just heard that from so many people. And so I think that's why we have the theater. I think Aeschylus and, and uh, Sophocles and Euripides, very, being very wise people, had just observed human nature and, and caught that aspect of it. You know, people are just wrapped up in narratives, especially our own. And then even more so as you get older, the narratives of your children and all become much more important than your own. You know, Raymond, we hear so many stories where somebody's had a heart attack or they've had cancer. And often you'll hear they say it's the best thing that ever happened to them. Very yeah. counterintuitive thought, you know, that here you is. have cancer or, or a heart disease and it's the best thing that ever happened to you. So why do yes. you suppose so many of us humans sort of wait till we've got some tragedy in our life, uh, wait till we get a near-death experience to start seeing the world in a different way? change uh you know something that's not making us happy or not fulfilling us or even uh, to the point where uh we start being nicer and live a more exemplary life but only until that incident happens yeah some people can get illness x and collapse from and just i give up other people about the same situation have that same illness and say you know, I'm going to fight this. And, and it, you know, it is just absolutely an astonishing show to watch being working in a hospital. I used to think of it like as a kind of um, museum, like with each room had, you know, one or two living stories in there and responding in all these different, that illnesses have their own patterns and also it, it impresses each person uniquely. Each, each illness, I think, is an altered state of consciousness. And um, illness can be a fascinating thing. I mean, here I am, 77. My parents both died when they were 72. You know, I've had these kind of chronic illnesses. I've been having kidney troubles recently, undiagnosed as of yet. But I mean, you know, my point is, I hear people complaining about this kind of thing. I'm saying, whoa, that's what that guy was talking about back in 1977 when I was <laughs> yeah. interviewing him. And, you know, really, it's um, 
because now I'm beginning to see all those illnesses that I, you know, I worked with the patients trying to help them. And then there was still that element I didn't understand. And now that I have those same illnesses, I'm saying, hey, thank you, God. It's, it's an education. It's all your attitude. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and I don't want any pain of it with this. I'm, and I don't want anybody to think I'm being macho here. I no pain. I've had kidney stones and gallstones. No pain. That's part of my prayer. No pain. And I'll be praying for that too. We'll pass on that. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, you know, my show is called the Motivation Show. So we're going to go on that theme right now. And what we want right. to do is want to motivate and inspire our listeners to feel hope. Hope is yeah. very important. Um, and faith. Faith is a very interesting word because faith presupposes that you don't have the science to back it up. And so in my experience, faith-based people seem to be the happiest, the most content. The challenge is those people who are not of faith keep asking for the science, which they're never going to necessarily get. How do you get into faith and how do you feel good about what will happen once you're no longer on this earth? Well, you know, Eli, thank you for that question, because as you and I know, it's a question that invites reflection, not a definite answer. I've just reached the point where I give up. I can't think of any way out of saying that there's life after death. It just, it's baffling to me and counterintuitive still, but I say, you know, to me there is, but I would not try to convince anybody else of that. By the way, I am not as you know, I'm not in the business kind of world. And so I'm always embarrassed about holding up a book and all, but this one right here for, this is my book on making sense of making nonsense. Making sense of nonsense. Yeah. And what this is, Eli, is that to make a long story short, people with a near-death experience, when they come back, they, no matter how articulate they may be, they say, I just can't describe it to you. So basically, in the course of, I've been working on this continuously since about 1969, I figured out a way to transform your mind by a series of mental exercises, where when later on, and you happen to have a near-death experience, you'll be able to reformulate it, to be able to describe it to everybody in a whole new way. It's already worked once, and I, I anticipate it will again. So what I'm getting at is that I wouldn't want to try to persuade anybody else that there's an afterlife, but you can grapple with the question yourself. It, but it takes a little bit of, you have to think through some things, but it, everybody will reach the same conclusion when they do. Well, I think it's a comforting thought to believe that there is life after life. What's the point? What's the upside of believing otherwise anyway? <laughs> Eli, that is so funny because see you, I see, I can see it your way, but I can more see it. My best friend, Milton Friedman. I don't know if I mentioned Milton to you, but for best, for 30 years, my best friend was Milton Friedman. And, and my Milton used to say, there are two Milton Friedmans. Said one has the economic solution and the other has the economic problem. <laughs> and my Milton was the one that, 
the one with the solution was the guy at the University of Chicago, but my Milton was equally famous and people were always getting their phone calls mixed, right? So that's like, he was, he lived there in Washington and one day he was sitting in his apartment or his house and phone rang, picked it up, this young woman from Harvard who identified herself as a, a graduate student in uh, economics who was writing her doctoral dissertation. So she asked Milton if he would give her a quote for her dissertation on monetary policy. And he said, sure, he said, money can make you rich. <laughs> but anyway, just this absolutely <laughs> wonderful guy. And Milton and I, you always used to talk about this all the time because we, he was just like me. It was very counterintuitive to him that there would be an afterlife. But, you know, you can't help but be interested in these stories. So. Some years ago, Milton died April 28th, 2005. But just three or four years before that, he and I were talking, and we were talking about these increasingly puzzling near-death experiences and all, and it was beginning to look like a holy mackerel. And I remember Milton saying, oh, I hope not. And he was sincere. So what I'm getting at is, it seems, yeah, to me, it seems all right, but I can see it Milton's ways too, see. One turn's enough, huh? <laughs> yeah. One, yeah. One crack at it. And at enough. the same time, at the same time, there's a bigger perspective where I want to come back, you know, so. Yeah. But my point is that not everybody views it positively, but what I'm, I feel is even beyond that, Eli, I think that whether you want it to be or not want it to be, what my estimate, one of the best, you know, I've been thinking about this a long time, is I think there is. And that what I gather from people who have told, been there and back have told me is that you can't, you just can't imagine how great it is. I mean, it's, uh, people say this is, you know, if you're a scholar, it's, it's like I've, a lot of people have told me there's a sheer, a whole realm there. It's just devoted to knowledge and so on. So I would say it's loss is hard, grief is hard. And yet what I'd say is just keep on working at this, that this sort of comes out as I gather great in the end. Well, we're going to go with the thought that there's life after life, because that's an awfully comforting feeling for people who are struggling to think that there's something better on the other side. Just hang yeah. in there a little longer and uh, you'll yeah. have uh, bliss. So uh, I like that. Now, you uh, have a knack, Raymond, for great titles of books. They work. And so your latest is God is yeah. than the Bible. In my interpretation, <laughs> yeah, yeah, is that it's God, silly. We are God's stories. Yeah. So the way I see it is, is that we are silly to believe that everything you know about God is contained in all in one book, and no matter how holy it is. Is yeah. that sort of the gist of it? That is. And also that, you know, I know so many people who are, they're, they're so turned off by the severe Bible believers who tell them, you know, if you don't do this or that, you're going to hell. I know just a lot of people I've met over the years who, who want a relationship with God, but they're just, you know, they're terrified. And now what I'm saying is, you know, that God's not going to hold it against you for not being up on your Bible 
lessons, you know, so this is that a holy book is one way of reaching out to God, but the, you can have a relationship with, with God without being into the Bible or without even joining a religion. It's like, to me, the essence of God is relationship. It's not some set of abstract belief, because if any of us think that we're going to get our beliefs about God right, <laughs> well, we've all got another thing coming, right? We're not going to be able to figure out, God, even with some book, you know, while we're alive here. But the people who've met God personally have all been greatly impressed at the love and the humor and the encouragement and the insight and understanding to the point where so many people, I've mentioned to you many times, Eli, George Ritchie, my psychiatrist friend, who was the first living person I knew who had this, and talking about the constant nostalgia he would have. And I just hear this all the time that once people are in the presence of God, they just, you know, that's where they want to be. And so they're always kind of feel homesick when they're here. And at the same time, people are, you know, it's very important for us to realize, I think, that we're here on a kind of mission. It's on each, I guess, in his own kind of mission. And one thing universally I hear from people is, especially the ones who had these near-death experiences as a result of a suicide attempt, is that say, after my suicide attempt and I had that near-death experience, I would never again attempt suicide. Not because they felt that it was going to be some sort of terrible hell that had gone through to completion, but rather because if it's kind of like a number of compared it kind of like to walking out at the, the movie before it comes to an end and also being kind of saddled with the realization that the, your loved ones left behind would suffer you know because of your act and but also more because of that thing of completion that this is just temporary and um, so it's um inspired me greatly eli i just um talking with all these thousands of people as I have about God, I have had a much different realization about God and also from personal encounter, which took place during a time of despair to me, I felt uh, in the presence of this complete compassion and understanding. But at the same time, a state you would always want to be there. We'd be with that. You just... Um, the way I experienced it, I just couldn't even stand up. I just kind of crumpled to the floor. So would you say that the most important thing as it relates to God is simply love? And regardless of whether we kneel and pray to God once or 5,000 times, he's going to love us equally? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And some people are fearful of God as like a young. Uh, a judge or, you know, they're going to be severe. They've got a book, you know, he's going to punish you by or whatever. And, uh, you know, I've just never heard anything like that. And the thousands of people I've talked with who had these life reviews and so on, it's, it's nothing like that. God is a lover, not a hater. That's right. <laughs> and um, 
I, I think that God is not really interested in justice. That sounds shocking, but I think God is interested more in what you and you're learning to love. You know, Eli, you're old, old enough to realize this too, but it's like I never put any effort in my life into going by that old song as well. The happiest life is a life of service to others. We've all heard that, right? From oh, the yeah. time we were kids. And you remember when you're young, it sounds like an ideal, right? Then you go on and maybe somewhere around midlife, you can actually make it an aspiration. But by the time that you have to get through paying all the bills, right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. And then when you get into your 70s, it's just a fact of experience. It's not an ideal or something you're inspired to. It's just that you've learned in life that you're only happy when you're serving other people. As long so as you're focusing on yourself, you're always miserable. So true. Yeah. A simple formula I learned from my experience as a psychiatrist is ego equals pain. And I've used that all over the world. You said, yeah, it is because whenever your ego is involved, it's always some painful experience, right? So what happiness is, is just getting wrapped up in helping other people and watching it. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's quite an entertaining spectacle here. It, you know, it's like assuming we all get, a, get through it alive, which I think we do, then all the things you experience are learning things. You know, what's interesting, Raymond, is uh, I hear people say the reason they don't do things for other people is because they um, had a bad experience or they got bit or, or the, somebody didn't acknowledge them. Uh, they weren't grateful. So therefore, that one person stops them from being yeah. uh, good to others uh, or doing nice things, which is kind of silly, but it's the way a lot of people think. And yeah. do you think that it's not about having 100 percent success? And the fact that if you just do good for other people, it just the goodness will come back to you in whatever form. It doesn't have to be the form that you expect it in. Don't expect it in a certain form. Just be, have confidence that it will come back to you. I don't know. I just, I don't know, Eli. I'd have to think about that. I guess I'm still at the stage where it's just still a novelty to me. All I guess I've been here about maybe 10 or more than 10 years now but you know just looking at back at my ego driven past and then the gradual transition and now how it is that all i care about is that these kids are happy my kids are happy my grandson is happy my wife is happy and i just don't care now i want i enjoy my books i just constantly read books and you know it your my mind is even sharper than when i was an undergraduate i think so but my point is that the happiness is just getting wrapped up in the happiness and good things for other people well that's really well i mean said. it sounds just a little like saintly or something but no i got here not through you know lying down on the bed of nails and burning the incense and climbing to the mountaintop with the holy man now no i got rid of my i would if that was the way i did it, it that would be egocentric right 
But the way I got rid of my ego was just by pretty much killing myself with it, pretty much. I mean, you know, my particular ego trip was jealousy. And, you know, it seems so real when you're in it. And then when it's over, you it's like, almost like you can, you don't hear a pop, but like pop, like a bite. And now what was so real, it's just like a dream, like, like a bad dream. So I realized after I got through that, I thought, oh my goodness, one ego trip is enough. And I was down at a, a Hindu ashram a few years back, and I was saying that in my lecture. And that's the, the, the Swami, he gets vigorously agreed. Yeah, you know, that's great. You just, one ego trip is enough. I, I can't even think of anybody that I've known who, has had more than one ego trip. In other words, once you get corrected from one, I, I've never seen a person come back with another. But well, you know, you know it's, it's interesting because you mentioned your ego trip uh, of being jealousy, and that's a very common thing, particularly mm -hmm. today when you're in a world of social media where you kind of judge yourself on your likes. And you look at the other guy and he's got more likes and he's got more comments. Uh, and it's kind of seems a little bit petty, but uh, it's so many people do that uh, as it relates to your world. It might be in who sold more books. But I think uh, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, you probably found out at some point, even with the millions of books that you sold, that is not where your salvation lies. Your salvation lies in just simply seeing your kids happy. And, yeah, uh, and that's okay. more fulfilling than selling 100 million books. Well, yes, and I got to say, Eli, I mean, I am so grateful to all the people who have liked my book, and I'm so grateful to God. I thank God for it every morning and every evening uh, and so on. And at the same time, I did not go into this with that expectation. When, I, when the book, I remember the first printing was 19,000 copies. Of Life and After Life. Trying, yeah. yeah, and I was trying to figure out well, how much would we make if we sold all those, you know, because I might thought of it. What I assumed would happen was that it would go to a few psychiatrists and psychologists who would be interested and then would ask around, around among their own patients and would confirm it. And that did happen. And at the same time, the thing I did not expect to happen was like the worldwide focus on it. And that came totally out of the blue. So I was not expecting that. And I just, I'm not so good with money. When all that money from life after life came, started coming in, I bought myself a railroad tank car full of elderberry wine, 200 barrels of straight pins, and a one gross carton of silk underwear. And I had some left over, so I just spent that <laughs> foolishly. But I'm kidding. I'm just not good with money. I would like to be, but you know, it's just the satisfaction of, and then the constant worry about your kids too, I guess. I mean, I lost my first child too, at age 36 hours, 1970, which is a lifelong wound. And so that, as I've talked to many other patients, uh, people, uh, friends, patients, and so on, who've had, had that same kind of loss and agree, you, you know, that once that happens to you, you you're always worried about your other kids. That's constant. And I have four, you know, and a grandson. Well, you know, what appeals to me about you, Raymond, is that you're, first of all, 
to me, you're a one of a kind yet being a one of a kind, you're just a regular guy. You're very relatable to, you can easy to talk right. to you. Likewise, you, uh, yeah. you get it, you know, and you get, it's not about yourself. You get, it's about a life of service and you have had a great life of service. Uh, and you've written this great new book. God is bigger than the Bible. I think everybody needs to go out and get that one. It's a intriguing read. Tell us a little bit more uh, as we close to show how people can stay in touch with Raymond Moody and your work. Well, great. I have a, a, a website, uh, lifeafterlife.com. I think it's www.lifeafterlife.com. Also, my book, uh, you can get on Amazon. It's published through Amazon. It's uh, God is Bigger Than the Bible. And I've, uh, it's a book I just worked on for many years. I'm very happy with it because it's, um, I just think religion scares a lot of people away from having a relationship with God. So that's kind of what the book is about. It's um, looking at God as a companion and a friend and a humorist and an educator more than anything else. Raymond, I want to thank you for being on my show. And more importantly, I want to thank you for being a great friend of mine and a great mentor. Likewise, Eli, just so, so much love for you and your family. So I hope I'll talk with you soon. God bless you and love back. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.